Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. Episode two. And it's already time for our first correction. Oh, no. What did we do? We kind of got Todd Muller's name wrong. Oh, cripes. Did I accidentally call him Simon Bridges or something? No, we said Muller, when it should be Muller. Rhymes with fella. Noted. There's only one way of saying Collins, right? Yep. Anyway, howdy my, welcome. This is Tick Tick, Stuff's 2020 election podcast for Thursday, the 6th of August. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham, Tiana Koto. Three times a week, usually on a Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday, we'll bring you the news and some of the more unusual things about this general election New Zealand is embarking on. And then we'll slow things down and focus on one particular topic. There are 43 days to go until the election. So, as we said the other day, we're in that kind of calm before the storm phase where the politicians have got one eye on the door as they finish up in Parliament. They'll be hitting the hustings hard come this weekend, but first there's business to get done. But as much as they want to get out there and start pleading for votes, there's still plenty of politicking and sniping to do inside the House before it finishes sitting today. They've got to rush through the last little bits of law that need to pass. If you turn on Parliament TV, if you want to turn on Parliament TV, you'll see MPs debating the Residential Tenancies Bill or other untidy pieces of legislation. Yeah, it's mostly quite uh, procedural. Is that a euphemism for boring? But sometimes that procedural stuff gets entertaining. All right, convince me. Warning, you're going to have to work quite hard. Right. So, take yesterday. The legislation seeking to charge some returnees for their quarantine hotel was up for the House. Reasonably uncontroversial, reasonable support across the House, even though some say it's not going far enough, etc. You haven't convinced me yet. Well, the thing was, there was only one party which didn't support the legislation, ACT. ACT. So when you say one party, you mean one MP. And now we're getting to the point. So, David Seymour voted against the bill at the first and second readings, and then had given his proxy vote to National for the third reading. A proxy vote is when you ask someone else to vote for you when you can't be in the House for some reason or another. And by the way, it's got to be a genuine reason, not just because you can't be bothered. Anyway, National was supposed to cast Act's proxy vote, but as our colleague Henry Cook reported on stuff, they didn't. They just forgot, it seems. (laughs) It's terrible. Poor old David Seymour. So will this have a huge impact on parliamentary democracy in New Zealand then? Not so much. It was act after all, so just one vote against the rest. But you can bet that David Seymour will be wishing that he can bring some mates back to parliament if, when, whatever, you decide. He returns after the election so he doesn't have to rely on forgetful gnats. Right, later on the show we're talking books, memoirs, biographies, essays, picture books, kids' books... But they're all political books, and we want to find out which ones Kiwis are buying. But first, Eugene, what's been happening? National says that if it wins in September, it won't be cutting taxes. That's a U-turn on previous party policy. There's a slight asterisk with that. It will go ahead with a long-promised change to stop bracket creep, which is where more people end up paying higher taxes just because tax brackets have stayed the same while wages and inflation have risen. The official unemployment rate figure released yesterday wasn't as bad as expected. It went from 4.2% in March to 4% in June, despite predictions it would surge post-lockdown. Bank economists were surprised. Some said it showed things weren't as bad out there as expected. Others said, let's see, eh? But they used bank economist language. 
And from the saga's national hopes will just go away file, the Privacy Commissioner has announced an investigation into the handling of COVID-19 patient data. But in what will be a huge relief to National, kinda, the investigation will concentrate on what information the Ministry of Health was distributing. Which is interesting, because some people assumed it would be about the leak by former National President Michelle Bogue or MP Hamish Walker. You know, even under MMP, most New Zealand elections still have a shape that's pretty easy to comprehend. You have a party or two that lean left, a party or two that lean right, a few other slightly less predictable parties that keeps on their toes because it's not entirely clear which way they'll go or whether they'll even make it into parliament. You know, your New Zealand Firsts, your, your Māori parties, your United Futures. But there's also always a bunch of tiny fringe parties that no one ever expects to get within a country mile of a seat in parliament. And the thing is... Even if those parties are never going to get that swipe card to access the parliamentary canteen and they aren't going to have any effect on the laws that shape our future, they still tell us something about the state of the nation. It's kind of like asking the body politic to stick out its tongue and say, ah. Look, a lot of these parties are jokes, and some of those have been the kind of joke where you laugh with them. The McGillicuddy Serious Party, or the Civilian Party, or the Pirate Party. Actually, the Pirate Party was part of a semi-serious international movement focused on internet copyright. I think you were thinking of Talk Like a Pirate Day, which isn't a party, but it's definitely a joke. Okay, bad example. Anyway, the point I was getting to is that every now and then, there's an election where New Zealand's joke parties really aren't especially funny. And I think 2020 might be one of those times. So over the weekend, Charlie Mitchell, he's a stuff national correspondent, did a deep dive into a few of the parties that have appeared just in time for this election. Essentially, he points out that the conspiracy theories and alternative realities that have infested Facebook and other parts of the internet in recent years are now making inroads into New Zealand politics. So Charlie started by taking a look at the New Zealand Public Party. This one really came out of nowhere, pretty much over lockdown, and it's led by a musician called Belite Kahika. His campaign to date has mostly been lots of activity on Facebook where he streams live pieces to camera about conspiracy theories. As Charlie puts it, in one of his recent monologues to Kahika, quote, interweaves Hegelian dialectic, the origins of communism and fascism, Satanism, geoengineering, and the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic into a sinister global plot to control the population. That's quite the cocktail, but it seems Facebook users kind of like this stuff. As of the weekend... Billy Takahika's Facebook page had more followers than the ACT parties. He's also drawn quite large live crowds at public events around the country. He's done an interview with the celebrity chef and anti-vaxxer Pete Evans, and his videos have been reshared online by David Icke. David Icke. He's the guy who reckons the world is run by a global elite consisting of shape-shifting lizards disguised as humans, right? Yep. So... That's the public party. They've actually merged with Jamie Lee Ross's advanced New Zealand party. And then there's the Outdoors Party, which kicked off in 2015 as a group of pretty moderate environmentalists, but has somehow morphed into an umbrella for an array of the most out-there conspiracy theories the internet can spew up. Charlie reports that at an Outdoors Party rally in June, topics of interest included 5G conspiracies, COVID-19 conspiracies, 9-11 conspiracies, and, I can't believe I'm even saying this, but also a speaker who explained that the Earth is in fact flat. Look, conspiracy theories have been around forever. So the Public Party and the Outdoors Party are tapping into some beliefs that 
have always been there. But Charlie also talks about how the internet in particular has allowed certain kinds of nonsense to spread further and faster than in the past, and how a surprisingly large number of people get pulled into these vortexes of nonsense. Yeah, I got a bit of insight into those vortexes of nonsense, as you wonderfully put it, last year when I was working on a documentary about online extremism. That was the documentary Infinite Evil, right? Yeah, yeah. And I spent a few months actually poking around YouTube and Facebook as well as the really toxic sites like 4chan and 8chan, and I realised something. Though it might seem quite... When you find a channel where someone is earnestly explaining how the earth must be flat, there is a kind of a treadmill which is accelerated by things like YouTube's algorithms, where you start with moon landing hoaxes and flat earth silliness and graduate to stuff about global elites and vaccine conspiracies, and then all of a sudden you're stumbling across some anti-Semitic tropes and literal Nazis. Things can get really nasty really fast. That documentary was actually about the Christchurch mosque shootings, and yeah, there's an ecosystem of online nonsense that can take you step by step from jokey conspiracy theories to mass murder. You were talking about jokes before, Adam, and that was one of the other things that I found really disturbing while looking at places like 8chan, which was like a nursery for the radicalisation of the Christchurch mosque shooter. What started as a place where immature young men gathered to tell edgy jokes has turned into a toxic meme factory. Like almost literally, you, you get people who spend their time figuring out and workshopping just the right balance between humour, propaganda and outright hate speech. Basically, they're weaponising humour as a way to drip-feed hate speech into more mainstream platforms like Facebook. We would actually see some of these memes be developed in 8chan and then turn up, especially on places like Twitter and Facebook. So yeah, these parties with their outlandish conspiracies and their disconnection from reality can seem like jokes, but I find it really hard to find them funny. Right. So obviously these fringe conspiracy-obsessed parties won't be enough to affect the outcome of the New Zealand election, but... Yeah, they still tell us something about the health of New Zealand's discourse, I guess. And I think any sensible doctor would say that a few of these ideas need to be put into quarantine. So you may have noticed these last couple of weeks a lineup of MPs giving essentially farewell speeches and wondered, what's that about? They're called valedictory speeches. Actually, they're called valedictory statements. And they're opportunities for an outgoing MP to have one last say in Parliament. It's kind of like if you leave your job and you stand up in front of everyone in the kitchen and mumble a few words while everyone stares at you awkwardly with sausage roll crumbs on their chins, secretly thinking, hurry up, I want to get to the pub. Something like that, but a bit more grand. Except many of these speeches are really great. They're by people who are often skilled orators, and they're filled with funny anecdotes, tearful moments and insights you don't otherwise hear. There is a time cap on them, according to Parliament's rules... 15 minutes, subject to the discretion of the Speaker, taking into account the length of service of the member. Thank you, Mr Speaker. But apart from that, it's a chance for an MP who is retiring to speak now or forever hold their peace. So to um, speak. Some MPs don't bother. There was some speculation, for instance, if Ian Lees Galloway, the former immigration minister who lost his job over an affair with a staff member, was going to come back to Parliament to give a valedictory. Some thought he wouldn't, but he did. And it was really interesting. He apologised to his family, but he also took a crack at New Zealand First. If stakeholder relationships can be hard to manage, they've got nothing on coalition relationships. There was also some touching personal stuff in there. There was the near end of our marriage, the death of my father, and now the end of my political career. 
We even had to put the dog to sleep a few weeks ago. Labour's Claire Curran, in her speech, got stuck into us, the media. Politicians and the news media focus on conflict. The objective is to catch people out and take them down. Politicians should be held accountable, but we are not prey. National MP Paula Bennett's was colourful, a bit irreverent, a mix of the personal and the political. I liked her finishing flourish referencing her 2017 weight loss operation. I end this chapter half the size, but twice the woman, thanks to this experience. I'm excited about the future, and I wish you all well. The best valedictory statements speak to where the speaker thinks the country is, and where it needs to go. So... We'll end with this one. Not from this year, actually. It's an oldie but a goodie. It's former Māori Party leader Tariana Turia from 2014. In this place, I felt profoundly the pain of the entrenched inequities too many Māori and Pacifica families face in terms of the lack of equitable access to health, education, housing, employment and economic opportunity. I've at times been devastated by the institutional racism that continues to limit our potential as a people. We should never be silent on the things that matter, the barriers that block our ability to be the best that we can be. And we must never be afraid to talk about anything that we know to be true and that we know to be right. It is only when we let fear take over and when we do not speak up that we let people down. Kia ora. Okay, time for our new occasional series, I Did Not Know That, New Zealand Political Trivia. We thought we'd start with something basic, something about capital cities. So, Adam, can you name New Zealand's seat of government, the capital, in other words? Pretty sure I know this one. That would be Wellington. Though, in overseas game shows and things, you do sometimes hear people guess Auckland because, you know, that is New Zealand's greatest city. Ooh, but also, hold your horse's sunshine because maybe they're not so much wrong as out of date because from March 1841 until 1865, Auckland, Tamaki Makoto was the capital of New Zealand. Okay, very interesting. But in fact, the piece of trivia we're getting to is about New Zealand's very first capital. Oh, I know this one. We learned about it in Mr. Brady's history classes at school, and I've actually visited the place, and also, I can see it written in the next line of script. So it is. Yes, look, just here. Russell was the very first capital of New Zealand. Da, 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 da. But that's still not the bit of trivia we're getting to. It's this. So, as you just said, the first New Zealand capital was Russell in the far north. After the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840, land was purchased at a settlement called Okeato for the Houses of Government, as it were, and Okeato was renamed Russell after some terribly important man in Britain with the title of Secretary of State for War in the Colonies. And for a whole year, that was the capital. But then, a year after the capital had moved on to Auckland, Okeato burned to the ground. So at that point... And this is the bit that I absolutely did not know. Okeato was basically deserted, and the name Russell instead grew attached to a place seven kilometres north, Kororareka, which means when you visit modern-day Russell, or Kororareka, you're actually not in the place that used to be the capital, because that actually happened down the road a bit, at a place we call Okeato. I did not know that. As Mr Brady probably told me, you learn something new every day. Right, on with the show. On September the 19th, we'll find out who is the most popular politician. Well, kind of, because as Grant Duncan told us the other day, we don't actually vote for personalities. Our two ticks are for selecting a party and an electorate MP. But anyway, put that aside. There's another way to measure the popularity of politicians. And so we grabbed our microphones and hit the street to see if we could find some answers. Tell us where we are, Adam. Well, we're here on Ponsby Road, uh, dodging the buses and the skateboard riders. 
Uh, but we're just outside the Women's Bookshop, which is an award-winning independent bookshop. For everyone. So we did venture out of the office, but... Yeah, nah, we didn't venture far, to be honest. Look the window. Oh, straight away. Judith yeah. Collins' porno punches. That's right. We took a wander down the road to the closest bookshop because, well, we thought that would be a good place to see what's happening with books, and specifically political books. We wondered if we could figure out who's the most popular politician by the measure of book sales. Jacinda Ardern, the Madeleine Chapman book. Uh, what else is there? Golara's Garaman. Know, know Your, your place. place. Yeah. There's even the Mary Trump book. Controversial. Should we see what's inside? Here we go. It's election year, so of course there's a swag of political books on the shelves. As if you didn't have enough of politicians by day, by night you can load up your bedside table with books featuring their smiling faces. Now as a genre, political books have a great tradition, from the fawning biography to the brutally honest autobiography, and sometimes it's a chance for ex-politicians or political insiders to dish some dirt, sometimes it's a way to make a bit of cash at the end of a political career, and sometimes they're designed to have an impact in an actual election year. Who could forget Dirty Politics, Nikki Hager's expose during the 2014 election? It was a book which ripped the lid off some allegedly dubious tactics by people allegedly connected to the alleged national government at the time. Yeah, actually I was with Prime Minister John Key on the day that Dirty Politics was published. So I was following him around for a Sunday Star Times feature, which included the horrifyingly naff stunt of him teaching me how to play golf, which was just ridiculous. But I do remember the tension that was in the air all day Everyone in the national communications team knew that a new Nikki Hager book was going to be dropping just in time for the evening news, but no one seemed to have a clue what it was going to be about. At one point, Key told me he thought it might be another book about New Zealand's role in Afghanistan and Iraq, because Hager had done one of those already. Um, he really didn't seem to know that it was going to be about whale oil and National Party nastiness. Key said that regardless of what Hager threw at him, he was wearing his lucky cufflinks, so he'd be fine. But I got the feeling there was some real anxiety. Hager also released Seeds of Distrust just before the 2002 election about genetically modified corn. And in 2017, he and John Stevenson wrote Hit and Run about an SAS raid in Afghanistan. This election year, there's nothing of explosive so far, but I guess we should watch this space. Political memoirs and biographies and autobiographies aren't usually as heavy hitting as that, but they can still tell you a lot, which is why we wandered down the road from the office to the women's bookshop to check out what was on the shelves. Oh, straight out of the gate, I can see Marilyn wearing the political years. Yeah, all right, and there, over on the politics and history wall, I can spot Helen Clark, Women, Equality, Power. Tell you what, it's pretty diverse. We've also got Elton John, Flea, Patti Smith, yeah, okay. It was a bookstore, so there was all sorts on offer. But it's fair to say we were spoiled for choice when it came to choosing a political read, especially oh, wait a minute. when we spotted the motherload. We've missed the motherload. Right in the middle of the shop, there's a great big display with what looks like an enormous number of Know Your Places by Gulrus Garaman. Signed, even. So there's the Jacinda Ardern, A New Kind of Leader by Madeline Chapman. Know Your Place, Gulrus Garaman. I know this to be true, Jacinda Ardern. Pull no punches. Loads of them. There's a picture book, Taking the Lead, How Jacinda Ardern Wowed the World by David Hill and Mary Trump. Too much and never enough. How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. And just over on the sales section is Annette King's book, Election Bargain. It was actually quite surprising just how many books were available. 
I'm Rachel Cooper and we're in the Women's Bookshop where I work as one of the team. So you've got quite a lot of political books here. We do. It's an election year. And is that when political books sell well, particularly, or, or are they all round? I think they sell all round, yeah, particularly the books about Jacinda. And there's a number of them, aren't there? Um, seven, I think. Oh. Sorry, you were a bit off mic there, Adam. What did you say? I said, oh, because... We knew the Prime Minister was popular on the book front, but we didn't realise quite how popular. There are the two serious adult biographies. There is a little book in the Blackwell series, which is an interview in book form. There's the David Hill hardback picture book about Jacinda. There's a small sort of school biography about her. There is a ridiculous book, part of a series of hundreds, called Jacinda the Peace Fairy, which is not necessarily about our Jacinda, but we're pretty sure it is. And I can't think what the last one was, but there was another. Okay, so in the end we could only find six, but still, that's a lot of books about Arjun. Including that slightly curious Jacinda the Fairy. Jacinda the Peace Fairy's special magic helps everyone to get along and do the right thing. Her magnificent magnifying glass reminds people to be considerate, so when it is stolen, everyone starts arguing and behaving badly. Can Rachel, Kirsty, and Jacinda restore peace and harmony everywhere? But the last few weeks have been dominated by another political leader sprinkling her own special kind of fairy dust all over the bestseller list. Our next guest has risen from humble beginnings to having a successful career as a lawyer and then carving a path to almost the very top of New Zealand politics. Her determination and resilience... It's been pretty hard to escape the publicity blitz. And her new memoir, Pull No Punches. We welcome to the cafe national MP Judith Collins. Good morning, Judith. Oh, good morning, Carly. Nice to see you. Well, I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to chatting to you about something other than politics and what's going on in the National Party right now. and It's just great. Her timing was great too. Judith Collins became the leader of the opposition just days after the book was published. And if there was anyone in the country who didn't know who this woman who wanted to be Prime Minister was, suddenly there she was, staring out from bookshop windows and at book signings. It was a book publisher's dream. Uh, Michelle Hurley. I'm a publisher at Aldenumwin, New Zealand. Michelle is the publisher of Judith Collins' book. I was interested in the extraordinary timing of the publication. I mean, it's not often that your author becomes leader of the opposition just a few weeks after their books come out. So I asked, what did that do? Did it create a bump in sales? Well, it was interesting because her book from the first day, we did a reprint the very first day, it hit the bookshops. How unusual is that? It's pretty unusual. I mean, it's it's tricky because it was a kind of post, you know, post-COVID. Uh, booksellers were probably being a bit more cautious than they might have been otherwise. I haven't actually noticed a huge difference since she became leader, but that's because she's just been kind of consistently selling really well each week. And it's only been out for four weeks. So mm. yeah, but really lucky with the timing and that, you know, she had a probably one or two weeks before she became leader. So the publicity had kind of hit already um, while she wasn't leader, which is better for the book. And then, of course, she's she's on the TV every night as opposition leader. So as far as unexpected publicity drives go, for a publisher to have the author suddenly catapulted onto the TV news and into a high-profile job must just be nirvana. Sometimes, though, it's a bit tougher getting publicity for books, even about popular leaders. That's what Michelle Hurley found last year when she published the Ardern biography by another Michelle, that's Michelle Duff, who, disclaimer, is one of our staff colleagues. You know, the interesting thing about her book was it was actually very hard to get publicity for that book. A lot of the media didn't really want to cover it for whatever reason. But then... 
something strange happened. Remember the hashtag Turnardurn movement? People would film themselves going into bookstores and turning over the duff book so the cover wasn't facing outwards anymore and then posting the video on mostly anonymous social media accounts with the hashtag Turnardurn. We saw it quite frequently. Rachel Cooper of the Women's Bookshop again. On one occasion, a couple came in and the guy, I was watching them, he walked up to the book and turned it over while I stood and stared and his partner looked at me and said, oh, he's doing it ironically. And I just stared at him until he turned it back. But yeah, we've had quite a few of that. Weirdly, yesterday, we had someone turn Judith over. Oh. Yeah, which was the first time we've seen that. Wow. Funny thing is, though, the whole movement was... One of the best things. Publisher Michelle Hurley. That could have happened to that book because all of a sudden it, you know, hit the, hit the news and was online everywhere and lots of people were like, oh, I didn't know there was a memoir out about Jacinda Ardern. I'll go and buy it. So it did nothing but favours for that book. So I guess Michelle Duff would have been surprised to learn that there is a real use for angry old right-wing men. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, okay. Enough chit-chat about stocking shelves and marketing books. What we really want to know is what makes a good political book and whose books are selling best. Actually, finding out sales figures is generally harder than getting an unredacted Official Information Act request out of the government. So we'll work our way into that. But let's start with the easy question. What makes a good political memoir? Michelle Hurley again. Well, I'd say firstly, a degree of honesty helps. Judith Collins, she wasn't afraid to say, for example, that she felt like she'd been thrown under the bus by John Key when he forced her resignation over the Oroveda scandal and and also temporarily stripped her of her honourable title. And she wrote about that and that got a lot of traction. Insider gossip and secrets have always sold memoirs, especially when they come from the centre of power. Though actually, when you think about it, a lot of politicians can be quite boring. So then they might does risk being the same. So there's really only, especially, you know, in a small country like New Zealand, there's only a few politicians who the public actually find genuinely intriguing. And they tend to be the ones that sell really well. I think memoirs Rachel Cooper. tend to sell slightly better than biographies. People like the aspect of hearing from the horse's mouth. There needs to be a good story. So the Golra's Garaman book... Um, particularly, I mean, that's just such an amazing story. And they have to not be hagiographies, and neither of the Jacinda books really are. In the meantime, we thought we'd see if we can find out what's actually going out the doors and shops. As a genre, how does it do? It does really well. This is Jenna. Jenna Todd, I'm the manager of Time Out Bookstore in Mount Eden. We're finding the New Zealand ones that have just come out have done really well. Uh, the Jacinda Ardern by Madeline Chapman got really caught up with COVID. I think that was come, came out the end of March, just right in the middle of that big fat mess. But Golras and Judith are our latest ones and they're doing well as, as well. They're just ticking away. We had a bit of a chat to Jenna about who buys these books and it was quite revealing. It's quite interesting, really, because our philosophy is never to judge why people are buying anything. But I've had some people say some very choice words about some of the political people they're buying books about while buying the books. Or I've had people in the past who have bought books of someone and I thought, oh, I'm surprised they're buying that book. And they would say, well, I actually just want to learn about them. And that's why we don't want to judge anyone why they're buying stuff, because you never know why. I just need to ask when you see someone who doesn't look like they would be buying that book, mm. what does that mean? So 
someone who's buying a Jacinta Ardern book but doesn't look like they should be, what do they look like? Well, that's the hard thing and that's something I have to check myself on. So you have in your mind what certain voters of certain parties would look like or what demographic would they be in. And I'm constantly... um, been taught to check myself on what that actually is. So now I just try and step back and let them do their thing. So of the political books that have come out this year, we've got one about a Green, one about a Labour leader and and one about a national leader, which is your favourite? You can talk to me about that upstairs. That's where the political talk is. Otherwise, we're Switzerland downstairs. We want everyone to feel welcome in here. And we're based in Epsom. (laughs) All right, we're not getting any further there. So let's put some hard questions to publisher Michelle. Can you give us an idea of how popular these books are and, and how well they do sell? I mean, if you're going back, the Norman Kirk biography, The Mighty Totara, which was published well after his death, that sold really well. I don't know the numbers. And David Longy wrote two memoirs and both of them were kind of really well regarded and sold really well. So it just depends. Like it's got to be, they're big names. It's got to be either a real kind of meatiness to them or they have to be of the right moment. Annette King's book by John Harvey came out and I'm not sure that sold hugely, you know, because she's probably not, right at the top of political life anymore. This history stuff is very interesting, but here's what we really want to know. So Alan and Unwin has published Judith Collins and Duff's Ardern biography. Go on, spill the beans, which one has done better? Uh, Well, Jacinda's has been out for over a year um, and is in a second edition, so it's probably sold more to date, but they've both done done really, really well. I'm so surprised to hear you say that. Very diplomatic. (laughs) Michelle also told us that the Collins book has had three reprints. So Adam, it's time to dish the dirt. Did you hear back from your source? Did we get any actual figures? Well, I went to Nielsen BookScan, which is like the intelligence agency of the book world, and they know how many sales there have been and that sort of stuff. And usually, like any good intelligence agency, they keep their secrets. But this time they really came through. We got sent a spreadsheet. There's a few caveats that go with that. The data only goes back to 2008, and it doesn't, and this is important, include wit calls or mighty ape sales. But it still paints a picture. So what'd you find out? I'm dying here. Enough for the caveats. So, total sales. There's a clear winner. John Rowan's 2014 biography of John Key, with more than 14,000 copies sold. And another former Prime Minister's book is doing pretty well. That's Helen Clark's collected speeches with over 4,000 sales. What I really want to know, head-to-head, Ardern versus Collins, what have you got? Well, it's a little bit complicated. But clearly ahead at the moment is Michelle Duff's Jacinda Ardern book with around 5,000 sales. It's a fair way ahead of Judith Collins' memoir, which is sitting on 3,700. But, and this is a big but, the Ardern book has been out for 10 months where the Collins book only went on sale a month ago. So... I guess the other thing we've got to take into consideration is that the Collins book is a memoir, the Duff book is a biography, and as Rachel said to us, people prefer memoirs. But this is exciting stuff. I wouldn't want to call it. Maybe we'll know more by September 19. There was one more thing we asked Michelle Hurley. So, 40-odd days out from an election, surveying the landscape... Who will you be approaching with a contract next to say, hey, write me a memoir? I have obviously, um, we have people in mind that we have already approached and will continue approaching, but I'm not going to say that because my competitors will be no doubt thinking, oh, yes, that's a good idea. So I'm going to keep that one to myself. Intriguing. What do you reckon? Winston Peters, my way? David Seymour, The Political Dance. Jacinda Ardern for a memoir. It's got to be a contender, doesn't it? Simon Bridges, Yakety Yak. <laughs> yeah. Paula Bennett, Westy Side Story. 
That's the Tick Tick podcast for Thursday the 6th of August. I'm Adam Dudding, here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Michelle Hurley, Rachel Cooper, Jenna Todd, Catherine George, Patrick Crudson, John Hardevelt and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and if you want to get in touch with us, email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We'll be back on Saturday, bright and early, 5am. Kakite anō.